you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 6, and we are going to be in verses 45 through 56. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56, and it's on page 841 in your pew Bibles, if you're following along there. Uh, The title of today's sermon is The Storm-Tossed Disciples. Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. Jesus walking on water has become one of those phrases that's associated with or synonymous with the miraculous. Uh, Maybe you've heard it said about someone, man, that guy walks on water, Uh, meaning they regularly pull off the miraculous or the impossible. Uh, Or maybe the phrase is used when it comes to expectations. What, do you expect me to walk on water? Meaning that the noted expectations are too high to accomplish as a mortal man or woman. While uh, us surfers constantly talk about walking on water, it's not the same thing as what we have in our passage today. Uh, What we have here is, in fact, miraculous. And it's yet another answer to the question that Mark has been posing and answering over and over and over and over again. Who is Jesus? So, with that question in mind, let's dive back into the text. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. This is the word of the Lord. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Our two main points for today's sermon are these. Point one, storm-tossed moments. And point two, storm-tossed revelation. So point one, storm-tossed moments. Uh, Before we launch into these verses, uh, I just want to point out how differently Jesus does things than most of us would. Uh, Think about what just happened in the text before this one. Jesus 
had a huge crowd who basically mobbed him trying to see a miracle. And Jesus didn't disappoint. He fed 5,000 5, plus people with five loaves and two fish. Astonishing. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus' disciple in that moment, I'd probably think, this is great PR. We've gathered a crowd. We've got their attention. Let's keep the momentum going. Let's get out the message. Remember, the disciples have just come back before the feeding of the 5,000 from going two by two to individual houses to share the gospel. That was somewhat successful. But this crowd? We're cooking with gas now. Come on, Jesus, keep going. That's not what Jesus does, is it? Look at verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Why would he do this? Why wouldn't he keep the crowd there and build on the momentum that he had created? Well, in its most basic form, it wasn't time. See, the people in the crowd seemed to put together all that Tyler preached last week. They saw Jesus do this miracle. and They put the pieces together. That this guy in front of them is the Messiah. Even though they didn't quite get what he meant. Or what that, that meant by being the Messiah. Now look at what John says right after the feeding of the 5,000 in his gospel account. So... Jesus has just fed the 5,000, John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Do you see that? Messianic fervor was at a fever pitch here. The crowd was ready to take Jesus by force and make him king. But they didn't quite get it. It wasn't time for Jesus to die. The disciples, the twelve, they didn't get it any more than the crowd did. And it seems that Jesus didn't want them there with the crowd fueling the fire. So he gets them out of there and dismisses the crowd. Jesus doesn't always do things the way we think he should. And here's the truth. He's good and right and loving, even when he doesn't do things the way we think he should. He knows what he's doing. He's always purposeful in his actions, even when they don't make sense to us. Now, let's... Look at verse 45 again. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. You see the language there. He made his disciples get into the boat. Very similar to the end of Mark chapter 4. 
There, Jesus led the disciples into a storm, knowing full well what was ahead of them. They weren't in a storm because of their disobedience or because they had misheard Jesus. They were there because they had heard him and actually obeyed him. Same here in Mark chapter 6. Jesus knew what was ahead for the disciples, and he made them get into the boat and go before him. Do you understand that, Christians? Yes, sometimes our own sin brings about hardship and trial on this earth. But sometimes storms come precisely because we're in the center of God's will. When it comes to prosperity theology, this text is a kill shot. See, prosperity theology tells you that if you follow Jesus, you'll be healthy. You'll be wealthy. Nothing ever bad will come your way. Not so. That's not the teaching of Jesus or the clear history of the Bible. I think about Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. This is such an alarming passage. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. So he's speaking to Peter here. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See that? Simon probably wanted Jesus to say, Simon, Satan demanded to sift you like wheat, but don't worry, I, I said no, because you're my disciple. But that's not what Jesus says there. His response wasn't, I'm going to keep you from any trouble, Simon. Jesus' response was, I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. The disciples in our text today are in the storm, not because of sin, but precisely because they're in the center of God's will. If that's you today, if you're in the middle of a storm, there's gold here in this text for you. So hang tight with me. But there's something else I want us to see here that's a little bit different from Jesus' stilling of the storm in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35 and 36, we see that on that day when evening had come, he, meaning Jesus, said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, Jesus, with them in the boat. So that time in Mark chapter 4, Jesus was with them in the boat. But this time, he's not physically present with them. He sent them out before him. And here's what I want us to see. This is a portrait of the age we live in as a church. And I don't just mean this cultural moment. I mean the time period from Jesus' ascension until Jesus returns. While we know from the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which we'll talk about in a little bit, we know that He's with us always to the end of the age. We know that's true. But while that's true, Jesus is not physically present with us in this age. 
The disciples got a taste of that here on the boat in Mark 6. They're being pushed into a tumultuous time without the physical presence of Jesus by design. You following me? Do you see that this is the age we live in as a church? Look at the next verse. Verse 46. It says, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Jesus is both an example here and an encouragement to us. First, he is an example. But we don't know the content of Jesus' prayer here, but we do know that this moment was a turning point in Jesus' ministry. And in these moments throughout the New Testament, we always see Jesus getting away to pray. It's so easy for us just to read past this and not see the truth here. We've just seen Jesus' deity through the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. We'll see his deity again immediately following this. But he's also fully human. He needs to pray. He needs communion with the Father. Here's the question for us. If Jesus, the sinless Savior, needed to pray, how much more so do we? Jesus was fully faithful in the mission that the Father had sent him on. He needed to pray. Church, We're on mission in a storm-tossed age that Jesus has intentionally pushed us into. Don't neglect prayer. It's one of the most important things that we could do. And Jesus here is an example for us. Side note, Jesus got a way to pray. So husbands, Specifically, dads. And I'm preaching to myself here just as much as you. Husbands and dads. We need to make time for our wives to get away to pray. So often, she can't you know, send her little disciples off in a boat so that she can get away to pray. <laughs> Husbands, dads, we have to make this happen. This is part of us loving our wives, creating spaces for her to get away and to pray. So Jesus is an example for us here of prayer. But he's also an encouragement. Because of the context and the way Mark recounts this story, we see that Jesus was most likely praying for his disciples and for the storms that he knew were over the horizon for them this night. Is that not a comfort for us? Jesus prays for his followers in the midst of storms. Let's just admit it. 2020 has been a storm-tossed year. It's felt like verse 48, making headway painfully wind against us. Jesus is interceding for us in the midst of that. 
While linked to atonement, look at what Hebrews chapter 7 says. Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 25. It says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And here we go. Since... He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, as the high priest, prays for us. Similarly, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, he prays for you. Look, as a shepherd of the flock of God, I pray for you. I hope that's encouraging. But that's nothing. Jesus prays for you. Be encouraged by that truth this morning. So Jesus purposefully puts us in storms, and then prays for us. But there's more. Look at verses 47 and 48. It says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So Jesus is alone on the land. He's not physically with them in the boat. Yet, he sees them. He's intentionally put them in the storm and prayed for them, and he sees them. I want us to understand that this is so much more than just a descriptive comment about Jesus' 2020 vision. John chapter 6, verse 19 tells us that at this point, the disciples were three to three and a half miles out on the water. They had probably been rowing for quite some time at this point. So, this statement isn't about Jesus' sight. But the point is clear. Jesus' focus and his heart are deadlocked upon his children, who are in the midst of a storm. In the Old Testament, there are a number of different names for God. And one of them is El Roy. The God who sees. We see this name in Genesis chapter 16 in the story of Hagar. She's in this moment of what must have felt like complete abandonment. And the Lord shows up and speaks to her. He tells her that she's pregnant. And most importantly, that he's listened to her in her affliction. Then look at Genesis chapter 16 verses 13 and 14. So she, meaning Hagar, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Elroy, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, which means the, the well of the living one who sees me. Do you see what a blessing it is to be seen by God? 
Most people think of God the way they think of Santa Claus, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Most people think about being seen by God as this awful, terrible thing. That he sees you so that he can smite you. But that's not the idea here. The idea of seeing here is that God knows what's going on in your life. And he cares deeply. Have you ever worked really hard at something? And had someone say to you, I see what you're doing. I see you. That's the most encouraging thing in the world, right? Friends, in the midst of a storm-tossed reality, Jesus sees you. We don't worship a God with blind eyes. We worship a God who sees. He prays for you. And he sees you. But it's even better than that. Let's look back at verse 48. It says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. So he came to them. And eventually, in verse 51, we'll see him get into the boat with them. And this is the other side of what I said earlier. Do you realize that while Jesus is no longer physically present with us, he is, in a very real way, with us, as he promised in Matthew 28. We're not alone. He sent his Spirit, who not only dwells upon us, but lives within us. In the middle of a storm-tossed moment, you, Christian, have the prayers of God, but you also have the presence of God. Do you see how this works? The Christian life isn't one of ease and comfort from storms, but it's one of peace and being comforted in the midst of storms, precisely because we know who God is. Jesus sends his disciples into storms. But he prays for them. He sees them. And he's with them. Point two Storm-tossed revelation. Storm-tossed revelation. Now, most people, when they're talking about this text, they say, it's about Jesus walking on the water. I've said that all week. What text are you preaching? It's about Jesus walking on the water. But the main point here isn't about Jesus walking on the water. The main point here is about who Jesus is. It's about Jesus revealing his person and his nature to his people. This text is remarkable, and we're going to dig deep in just a second. But even if you know nothing at all today about the Old Testament, it's not hard to see in this text that anyone who can walk on water isn't like the rest of us. The disciples are struggling. The wind's blowing. Here comes Jesus walking on water. 
If you just take this at face value, you know at bare minimum that Jesus is supernatural. But Mark goes to great lengths to make sure that his original audience and us this morning don't miss his main point. Look at the end, verses 48 through 50. It says, And about the fourth watch of the night, he, meaning Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus isn't leaving anything to chance here. It's so important that his disciples know who he is. He could have just picked up another boat and caught up with them later. He could have met them on the other side of the the sea the next day. But he walks to them on the sea. Why does he do this? Well, he's intentionally appropriating the description of God in the book of Job. Job chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. Job 9, 8 through 10. Job is giving this this glorious description of who God is. He says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? It's God alone who tramples or or treads on the waves of the sea. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? He's God. This isn't simply a text about Jesus walking on water, or even about him rescuing the disciples, as amazing as that is. It's about a manifestation of Jesus' deity. He's God. And what about this strange phrase in our text? He meant to pass them by. Weird, right? Did Jesus mean to ignore them? Was he unaware of their struggle or just unobservant? No. Look at the next verse in Job chapter 9, verse 11. Job uh, described God as alone, trampling on the waves of the sea. Then, verse 11, he says, Behold, he passes me by, passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. But even if we miss the reference to Job here in Mark 6, it'd be hard to miss the bigger idea that's present all over the Old Testament. In several critical moments in the Old Testament history, God reveals himself in what's called a theophany. So think of these places as where God shows up, or where God reveals himself. Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 23. This is a famous one. Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Speaking to God here. Please show me your glory. And he said, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Do you see that? God reveals himself to Moses by passing by. Similarly, when Elijah the prophet was on Mount Oreb, we read that, that text earlier. Elijah is going through a rough time, specifically because of his faithfulness to God. Rough time because of faithfulness to God? Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the disciples are going through. And God reveals himself to Elijah. 1 Kings 19 verse 11. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Again, Jesus is doing what he's doing. And Mark is using the language that he does to make it clear here. Jesus is the glory of God. He is God. He treads on the waves of the sea. He passes by like the Theophanies of old. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, all kinds of people try to take this passage and just explain away the supernatural and the miraculous. They say things like, oh, he wasn't really walking on the water here. He was walking on a sandbar or some kind of channel of land. Or the salt content of the water allows people to float more than normal water. So that's what's happening here in this text. First, Remember, from John 6, they're three or more miles out on the water. This isn't a sandbar. But even more, look at the disciples' reaction. They thought it was a ghost. They're terrified. That tells us all we need to know. If people walking out there on sandbars or salt water, if that was a normal and known thing, they wouldn't be scared at all. This would be normal. Oh, here comes another guy walking on the sandbar. We know how that works. It's not what they do. They're terrified and they cry out. This is miraculous and supernatural. Besides, we believe something way crazier than that a man walked on water, right? We believe he rose from the dead. This is just a foretaste of what Jesus is capable of. Jesus walks out to them, and then he speaks. And what does he say? Take heart. 
It is I. It is I, in Greek, is actually two words. Ego, a me. And this phrase, to the original ear, would have been laced with double meaning. On the surface, it can mean, it's me. Don't worry, it's me. But more importantly, ego a me means I am. I am. It's the phrase used all over the book of John when Jesus is giving these I am statements. I am, which is the divine name revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And then Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of, of God, of the God of or say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the name I am or Yahweh, is often written in all caps, the capital L, Lord. It's the proper name for God throughout the Old Testament. Do you see what Jesus is saying here in Mark 6? In the midst of their terror, he comes to them, walking on water, Job 9, passing them by, like 1 Kings, and saying, take heart. I am. For those who believe that Jesus never really claimed to be God in the Bible, he picked a really strange way to do it. No. He is wanting the disciples and us to know without a doubt who he is. So who is Jesus? The God who has revealed himself. The great I am. So God incarnate walks up on the water, speaks, and then, verses 51 and 52, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. What a statement. Isn't this mind-blowing? Think about all that the disciples have seen up to this point in the book of Mark. They've seen healings. They've seen demons flee. They've seen a little girl rise from the dead. And verse 52 tells us that they didn't get the bread thing. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. heavy, huh? This isn't Pharaoh we're talking about here, whose heart was hardened and he didn't let God's people go. 
It's not Israel whose hearts were hardened in the wilderness as they actively rebelled against God. These are guys who walked with and talked with Jesus every day. They'd even been preaching the good news and on mission. And they didn't get the bread thing because their hearts were hardened. There's a, a warning here for us who follow Jesus. Don't miss this. It's possible to be here at church week in and week out doing the bread thing at the end of our services and to have your heart hardened, missing the reality of Jesus. It's possible. But here's the encouraging truth. Remember, Jesus knew their hearts. He saw their hearts on their faces. They were terrified. They cried out. They couldn't keep hidden that their hearts were hardened. But Jesus got in the boat anyway. Do you see God's grace here? Jesus would have been justified in just walking on past them and moving on. Who would want to jump in with a crew like that anyway? He could have left them there struggling in their hardness of heart in the midst of the storm. But he doesn't. He loves his disciples. He gets in the boat. The storm stills. And he gets them safely to shore. He loves to rescue even hard-hearted disciples. He loves us. And we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. You see the grace of Jesus? That's the kind of God that I want to follow. I can trust that God with everything. If this is you this morning, let go of your oars. Let go of striving. Let go of sin and unbelief. Trust in Christ. He's the only one who can rescue you. He came to this earth and lived perfectly in every single way. He died on the cross to pay the full penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead three days later, proving that he was who he said he was, solidifying the payment that he made was acceptable and full. If you're not a Christian, Jesus calls you to turn from sin and to trust in Christ today. That's how you can be rescued. In verses 53 through 56 are here to show you what Jesus is actually capable of. Again, this is the graciousness and the patience of Jesus. Even after the disciples are hard-hearted, he allows them to see more evidence that he is God through healing people at the shore of Gennesaret. Those who flock to him are made well, a physical reality of what he's done for us spiritually. So if you're not a Christian, realize this. He's calling you. Come to him. Be made well. Now, if you are a Christian, the response is no different. You're called to a life of repentance and faith. 
daily turning from sin, daily trusting Jesus, the great I am. He's committed to you. He loves you. In the midst of storms, even in the midst of hard-heartedness, he prays for you. He sees you. He's with you. And he's God. So trust him. Lean on him. Find joy and satisfaction in him. Let's pray.